Your reality is spiritual. His truth is His truth. And if we can align with God's reality, we will finally be living by reality. All right, well, Paul Saborn has been uh, preaching about the testimony. And the testimony, you know, he said that's really synonymous in the Old Testament with the Ark of the Covenant. That the Ark of the Covenant and the testimony, they were the same thing. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the testimony of God, uh, his history, okay? And we've used the word testimony in some other ways. So if I were to tell you how I became a believer, I would be testifying. If I was to be telling you a truth from the Bible and talking about creation and how in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, I'm testifying. To testify in a court of law is to speak to what you know. If we know that God is in us, we've got to speak to that. Romans 9, 10, and 11 says, if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you shall be saved. So we first believe in our heart. We really can't testify to something that we don't have in our heart. Okay? We've also uh, had uh, very, very much impressed upon us from Revelations 12, 11, I'm pretty sure. I should have written that down and looked at it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, there, the Word of God is talking about uh, believers in heaven and how they overcame. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the Word, or sometimes the power of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from even death. Amen. So that is the kind of testimony that will keep you able to defeat Satan. Okay? He's strong. Very strong. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. That has happened. We believe that as Christians. And then by the word of our testimony. Today we're going to hear a testimony from Phil and Susan Coombs. And Phil and Susan, they're, um, they're refugees here from uh, the Los Angeles area. So, so we welcome them uh, here. And they've been, uh, they've been a part of our church for a while. I've got to know Phil in the, in the Band of Brothers Bible study. He loves the Lord. He loves the Word. And uh, so it's my pleasure to introduce them uh, to you today. Um, he kind of grew up in Montana and uh, various places, but they, they landed. You now, and Susan was born in Japan, of all places. So you think military then, uh, most likely. And uh, Phil was a firefighter. That was his career. He, that's his trade. He was a firefighter for 25 years in Long Beach, California. And uh, Susan was a nurse for, I believe, 37 years, um, give or take a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, so she worked in the emergency rooms and intensive care, uh, mobile units, that kind of thing. And uh, so I think uh, they've raised a few people from the dead, uh, or at least saved some lives. So without any further ado, Phil and Susan, come up and be introduced here. And part of this, uh, we are also um, starting off another new ministry. And this is a marriage ministry, and I'm not going to tell you... Uh, very much more because that's part of their testimony. But I'd like first for the elders to rejoin me up here and we're going to anoint 
uh, Susan and Phil, they have been speaking with uh, Paul Saborin and uh, said this is their, their history and their testimony is about marriage. And they want, uh, with Paul, to start a marriage ministry at Little Chapel of the Hills. As I said before, before you can have a ministry, you have to have a minister. We have two. And uh, Phil and Susan have said, we would like to start a marriage ministry, which has been their history in other places uh, in California. And so uh, I'd ask for the elders to come up here, and we're going to lay hands on Phil and Susan, as is our custom and is a biblical pattern. And uh, I'll ask uh, Ken Hesselberg to please pray for them as I anoint them with oil. Heavenly Father, we just thank so much for this couple here. What a wonderful ministry. They uh, want to get started here. We just pray that it would flourish and it would be such a blessing to this, this congregation and to this couple and even to the, the area around here. God, that you would just move in a mighty way in their lives and pour forth your spirit and your blessing and uh, make this such a, a huge blessing to them and everybody else. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, Bill and Susan, we commission you in this way and uh, just we want to join with you. Thank you so much for feeling the call of God upon you to uh, say, I'm getting back, I'm in the fight. Sue, I was from here to there. Some of my testimony has changed already. It's the Holy Spirit work, and I, don't, I hope you can just follow along. <laughs> Anyways. We always, that's, you know, marriage ministry for us in the past has been a tag team effort. It's, it's something that we do together. So if Phil's talking and I happen to stand up and interrupt him, it's just kind of the nature of it. <laughs> we heard before when we were starting the marriage ministry that couple, to count, couple counseling is the most effective way to, to administer and to counsel couples. So, and it was out of a Stanford study at a, not a Christian school. So, maybe Stanford is, is it? Anyways, anyways uh, the change was, uh, I was going, trying to start my testimony here, and uh, God told me, he says, when you were wayward, when you were uh, not following my ways, I was still protecting you. I was still watching over you. It wasn't until years later, after I became a Christian, that I looked back and saw the days that he had protected me. Southeast Asia, a whole bunch of places. Anyways, that led me to the night of uh, November, a Saturday evening in November, 1980. Uh, I, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and I was at a Catholic church. I was raised Catholic. And, uh, and I was sitting in the prayer. didn't know what the priest was preaching about that night because it didn't matter. I was having a conversation with God. And I said, Lord, there's got to be more to you than what I'm giving. Lord, please bring someone into my life that would make a difference. Well, I didn't know who that was. And about a month later, I met Sue. Christian woman, uh, not Catholic, <laughs> um, and uh, then uh, we met. And uh, did you want to come? <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. In January of '81, I asked Sue to a rodeo in Montana, you know, Great Falls, 
and uh, she accepted, and uh, we've been together ever since. Um, now, mind you, I, don't, I have to. I don't need. Okay. Um, I didn't. I oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll use the mic then. I didn't like Phil when I first met him. I was on a blind date, actually. My roommate had set me up with, and it was um, never done a blind date before in my life. And here I am in Montana, California girl, and um, we're going to go horseback riding. Well, I don't know how to ride a horse. Never been on a horse, don't know how to ride a horse. So we're going to double, you know. I, I was on the back part. He was on the front. It wasn't Phil. It was another guy who totally was not my type either. Um, but we all met back at the end in a, um, a big warehouse area where um, there was, you know, several pro um, acres of property and this warehouse was there and there was um, Phil. Now I recognized him because he had ridden out on his horse to meet us. We were out in these hay stubble fields and uh, you probably wonder, why is she sharing this? She's utilizing all this time to share. But it's really important for you to know how I perceived Phil then. And so he rides out on this horse. This horse's name was Fred. It was a women's barrel racer horse. And uh, so whenever you got way out, you know, away from uh, the pasture, the stalls, this horse... Um, was anxious to get back. So we're now riding back. He's ridden now out. You know, what are you guys doing tonight? Oh, we're going to go out and have pizza and play pool. And in Montana, there's not much to do. There's more bars than there are churches. And um, so, uh, uh, so we're heading back. Well, Phil's horse turns around and starts to head back. And I had never in my life seen a horse foam up. And Fred was foam. He had turned from this light brown to this white and was just foam all over because he was so anxious to get back. And so, of course, Phil says to everybody in the show off that he was at the time, you know, I'll race you. <laughs> he had no control over Fred whatsoever. And so Fred beat us all back to, the, to, the, um, uh, to this big warehouse. We all get together and decide we're going to go have pizza and play pool, so we're out they're playing pool again. I don't know how to do that either. I'm from Southern California, hadn't played pool before, but my roommate had, and she was from Eastern Montana. And so she's, um, you know, bending over to hit the, you know, the ball with the pool cue, and Phil's sitting right behind him. I won't tell you what he said, but he wasn't polite. He wasn't a gentleman, in my opinion. And I never dated anybody like him. I didn't really care for him, didn't spend much time the rest of the evening around him. And so he was the type of guy that those of you that have daughters, you wouldn't want your daughter to date. You wouldn't want your daughter to marry. And thank goodness my parents were in Southern California. Um. That leads me to May of 1981, where, uh, I, where I was baptized. Um, and I got baptized, uh, I'm sorry, not baptized, accepted the Lord. I went for, forward in 1981, and then May. And then uh, two of my friends afterwards said, Bill, it's not a woman. They've changed you. I said, you're right. Mike, it's, uh, it's Jesus changed me. Then Don said, another friend of mine goes, 
he was my running buddy. We just partied together. And uh, he says, Phil, they could have took a gun out and shot us both. Done the world a favor. So that was how much, that's who I was before I accepted the Lord. I was baptized in 19, August of 1981. And, uh, and Mike from work, I'd been working with a few years, and he come up to me and he said, uh, Phil, I'll never stop praying for anybody ever again. He said, because I knew you were the one person God couldn't love. I said, right, Mike. God has changed me and done all that. So we were married in uh, June of 82. And uh, got that right. Okay. And then uh, and we went to ECNA Church in uh, Montana. And we had a pastor named Raleigh Struts. And uh, he gave us, uh, me and Sue were doing the youth ministry at that time. And uh, so I, I asked, and I asked us, we're going to go to uh, California. There's more opportunity there. And we're going to uh, continue on our lives. And he says, go where you're going to grow, Phil. And I said, okay. And then that was our future. We left uh, Montana, and we headed to California. She hasn't been back since. I have been a couple times, but she hasn't been back since. But um, then I, uh, after a year, I was in uh, Southern California. I decided to be a fireman. And uh, I met a, a fireman who just got hired. His name is Dave Kaufman. And uh, so he... So he told me how to take the procedures to go do that. So I went to Santa Ana's Academy, uh, college, and then they had an academy as well. So uh, while I was uh, uh, studying, and I tested for the city of Long Beach. Uh, it's a long process, like two years. I said, oh, I just try it, you know. Um, and then uh, in, in the college, you have an academy. You had to go through this academy. And uh, well, Sue came with me the day that uh, we were doing a lottery. 20 positions, there was 30 positions, 20 of them were already filled with sponsors. 10 were not. So we got 10 people who were going to get drawn. And I came out to be the number one alternate. She drew the drummers, and I was the number one alternate. Uh, the guy was telling me, the chief was saying this, man, you didn't even pick your husband. <laughs> And uh, anyways, um, so, but two weeks before that, the academy uh, started in uh, January, a uh, friend of mine, who we'd done papers together in uh, uh, college, uh, some building inspections, things like that, fire-related, was killed in a car accident. And that meant I got into the academy. Then, I, would, I had told you I uh, tested for the city of Long Beach. And, uh, well, I scored 47 out of 10,000. They're going to hire 60 people. Man, I'm in. Well, the demographics for the area, for the city of Long Beach, were where I wasn't going to get hired. Uh, they were hired, they were going off the list, and uh, they had, they had uh, 125 people that had made the list, and they were going all over the place, and I again became the number one alternate. Didn't know it until three days before the academy started. Two guys quit and went to LA City, and then I was uh, called by Linda Hutt, the uh, chief secretary, 
And I was going out the door, just as I was walking out the door, she called. And I was going to test for the city of Newport Beach. And, uh, and she said, Jay, you want a job? And I go, absolutely. <laughs> so I hung up the phone and I says, well, how am I going to tell Sue? So I went and got her a card. And because this is a really good part. <laughs> I only get the good parts. So uh, I was working at the time on a diabetic unit, uh, a seven to three shift, and then I was pulling overtime, so another eight hours down in the emergency department, because that's ultimately where I wanted to be. And so I thought, you know, I'll just, you know, pull my extra shifts down there, no problem. Now, we had two children at the time. Um, they were born 18 months apart. was not our plan. Most people looked at me and said, Sue, don't you know, you know how to take care of that sort of thing? <laughs> You're a nurse. You should know. Um, but God had a different plan for us. So our kids were 18 months apart. They were very little. They were about two and three years old. And we had, for the last three, three and a half years, just been <laughs> robbing Peter to pay Paul. We had a Plymouth Horizon car that broke down every time you turned around. It was very tinny, and if you're driving in Southern California, that's not the car to get in a car accident in, because it, it'll crush you. And so the car, like I said, was breaking down all the time. We, couldn't, we still owed on it. We were making payments, but we couldn't really afford the payments, so I would send a $5 check to the credit union in, Mo in Great Falls, Montana, and say, I'm sorry, but that's all I've got this month. And I would send that $5 check. I thought, I, if they come out and repossess it, they, I guess they repossess it, but who wants this car? But it was the car I was driving to get to Riverside. We lived in Temecula, and if you know Southern California, Temecula is about 60 miles northeast of San Diego. Uh, and it was about a 45-minute drive, and, and I don't use miles um, in Southern California. You just never do because of traffic. <laughs> so it was about a 45-minute drive from my house in Temecula to work in Riverside. And I worked at Riverside Community Hospital. So I was tired. You know, you got a two- and a three-year-old. I'm working double shifts. Phil's going to school. We would, you know, just kind of, here, take the kid. You know, our daughter had colic as a baby. It was, I was exhausted. And so Phil calls me at work. I'm going to get off at 3, 3.30 calls me at work, he says, let's go out to dinner tonight. And I said, <laughs> we can't afford it. I don't want to go. I'm tired. I just, you know, let's just figure out what we can do with a box of rice aroni. And so I, um, you know, we got, I got home, and he said, no, let's go. You know, we packed up the kids in this little Plymouth Horizon. It's like, Phil, I don't really want to go. Well, let's go to the Mexican restaurant in Bonzel, which was about... 10 miles or so from our house, but you had to take the freeway. You couldn't take side streets. We no longer get on the freeway, and we have a flat tire. And I said to him, see, you know, I can't, I, I don't want to go. We weren't supposed to go. This isn't, you know, we had a flat tire. So Phil's out changing flat tire, just probably tuning me out, but um, uh, changing the flat tire. We finally get to the restaurant, and they seat us in this U-shaped booth. So our kids are two and three. They're on one of those little booster seats, you know. Well, used, you know, we always used to sit where it was, you know, parent, child, parent, child, you know, because they can't keep their hands off of each other, so you got to separate them. But in this particular time that we went to dinner, Phil strategically set himself across from me in the booth. 
So the kids are on the inside, I'm on an end, Phil's on an end. So the waitress brings us the water and so forth, and we hadn't ordered yet, and Phil slides this card across the table. It's in an envelope, he slides this card across the table to me. And I'm still kind of fuming, we've had a flat tire, I've had a hard day at work, and here we are sitting in a restaurant, and I gotta deal with two kids. So um, I open up the card, and on the front of this card, now picture for me, this woman, she's just disabled, you know? I mean, her clothes are a mess. Her hair looks like she's been plugged into a light socket. It's just sticking out and happens to be red. <laughs> and <laughs> I open up this card, and I don't even know what it said, but at the very bottom it said, sitting across the table from you is a Long Beach firefighter. Now, we were hardly making my, our bills. I, like I said, I was sending $5 as a car payment. We were trying to figure out night after night different ways to cook rice-a-roni, <laughs> keep our kids interested. And um, so I just broke, I broke down. I said, I started to cry. I said, don't lie to me. You're lying to me. This is not a funny joke. You know, don't, because he had just gotten a, a letter that said, I'm sorry. You know, you didn't make this round of hires for Long Beach. And um, uh, so we just really thought, okay, I guess, you know, I don't know what we do next. Just take it day by day. And so when he wrote that on the card, and you can just imagine, you know, you're tired. You know, those of you that have kids, you're exhausted. You're hardly making it financially. And then he says that to you. And you know in your head, oh, my God. That means our income has just doubled. Oh, am I going to move on? Okay. So all that to say, you know, um, uh, God took us through so many trying periods. But, you know, isn't that what he does? He, you know, it's a refining fire. He, he softens those edges. And... Um, uh, you know, Phil was raised Catholic, as he had shared. He had, uh, there were four boys in the family, one girl. His mom was divorced, so he came from a divorced family. Um, you know, she boarded the train in Montana and said, come on, boys, here we go. You know, we're going to California where her sister lived. And his dad, his real dad, was an alcoholic. She remarried and, and uh, remarried an alcoholic, but who was also... Um, a former Marine. So put those things together and you can imagine how the boys were raised. So that's the family life that he came from. Now the family life I came from, like Paul said, I was born in Japan because my dad was in the Navy. And we lived there for about three years. When, I, when we came back, we went to Iowa to see my mom's family and here's a three-year-old who's speaking Japanese. I have fair skinned, redhead, speaking Japanese. So um, uh, we had a nanny in, in uh, Japan that only spoke to me in Japanese. And so those were the words that I was, I was learning. My mom was working and my dad, of course, was all over the place. Um, you know, when I, when I prepared this, I'll just <laughs> say... <laughs> I did it last minute because I was, I didn't want to do anything God didn't want done. 
I don't want to say anything God doesn't want said. And um, uh, I kept saying to Phil, I'm, I, and I even said to Pastor Paul, I said, I'm so reluctant to put this together because I want it to be God's words. I want it to be what he wants us to share because so much has happened in our, in our life. But I do want to share with you just a little bit so you understand the difference between Phil and I. We got married. We were very opposite. He was raised, like I just shared with you, I was raised in a very strict home. My dad wasn't around a whole lot. Uh, my mom pretty much raised us and was the disciplinarian in the home. And um, uh, there were two girls, and I was the youngest. My sister was four and a half years older than I was. And so um, uh, when I, she was born, she has dark hair and olive skin. We don't even look alike. And then here I came along four and a half years later, and my hair was red, and I was fair-skinned. And uh, wherever we went, you know, everybody kind of made over the fair-skinned littlest one. And so my sister really developed a real jealousy um, with me that exists to this day. Isn't that sad? That exists to this day. Uh, and so growing up, we weren't very close. And... Um, uh, but I, because my sister and the way in which she wanted to get her attention was to go in a very negative direction, she was always in trouble. I tried to please my parents. I was the, the one that was the good girl. I was responsible. I was afraid if my parents got mad at me. There was even one time when I was a little kid that I, I lied and said that I did whatever it was that that we were getting in trouble for that I knew I didn't do, but I just, I didn't want to get spanking. So if I just said, you know how your parents say, you know, you don't tell me the truth, I'm going to belt your butt. You know, I'm going to give you a spanking. And so I didn't want to get a spanking, so okay, I did it. So that's the type of person I was. I knew always I wanted to be a nurse. My grandmother on my maternal, on the maternal side was a, was a nurse. She was an LVN. I was very, very close to her, very godly woman, um, and um, I always knew I wanted to be a nurse. And so I just, from high school, started that path, you know, went to Point Loma College, which is now Point Loma University in San Diego, wanted to get into that nursing program, but God had, again, another direction for me, and I was the number one alternate. So I applied to many universities. I thought, I'm just going to go with the first one that takes me. I applied to Oral Roberts University. I had gone to church. I was raised when we were really young in the Wesleyan Methodist Church. And then uh, after um, I got into middle school and high school, I went to church by myself, which was an independent Baptist just down the street. But it was really important for me, and I accepted the Lord when I was in third grade. And God was a very important piece in my life. And I wanted to please him, just like I wanted to please my mom. And so um, Montana State University said, come on down. And I said, okay. And I packed my bags, and away I went. And it was the first time I'd ever been away from home. And being there, I realized, and God showed me, that I am different than my mom. Now, my mom didn't really care for that a whole lot, but I found my own identity when I was in Montana and my identity in Christ. And I happened to be renting a basement apartment with uh, a couple that um, I became very, very close to, and they were the college and career couple, Barb and uh, Ron. 
and um, we were attending an independent Baptist church there, and I went to the pastor one day because when I was in third grade and I accepted Christ, my dad was still in the Navy, we traveled a lot. When he retired Navy after 25 years and he went to work for the Penwalt Corporation, we traveled a lot. We moved from place to place. So I never got baptized. You know, and I'm the good girl. I'm the one that has to follow the rules. I'm the one that, you know, um, things have to be a certain way. And so I went to the pastor and I said, you know, I was never baptized. And he said, Sue, you have Christ in your heart. He said, you know, baptism is a formality. You've made it public. We all know that you love the Lord, but if it's really important to you, okay. So if you've ever been in those, you know, big churches where the baptismal is in the back, that's where I was with the choir, white choir robe on, and he baptized me, and I was happy as a clam because now I had done all the steps I needed to do. So when Phil and I met, you know, he was this wayward guy, and um, there was just no way I was going to date him. Met him in October, had gone home for Christmas, came back, and uh, was in Great Falls, Montana. My apartment was right across the street from the hospital, and there was a grocery store just down the street. I'm in the grocery store. These two guys come walking down the aisle, and I look up because one of them is like 6'6". <laughs> and there was this short guy next to him that I, you know, didn't even recognize because when I first met Phil, his hair was longer than mine, and it, my hair wasn't long then, I had short hair, but his hair was longer than mine. He was a dirty blonde with a really mixture beard. He had blonde, red, brown, yeah, he was very unkept, but it was hunting season. I didn't know that's what you did in Montana to stay warm. So um, they come down the same aisle that I'm in, and I'm talking to Gary, and there's this guy standing there that's clean-shaven, kept, nice and clean, and it was Phil. Um, and um, so as we got ready to say goodbye, see you, Gary, you know, I walk this way, they walk that way, and I'm thinking to myself, who was that guy that was with him? And I turn, and when I turned, Phil turned at the same time. And so, of course, he interpreted that as I wanted to go out with him. So <laughs> he calls me and asks me to a rodeo. Do you want to change? Do you want to tell the story about the rodeo and the couple sitting behind us? Yes, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, we went to the rodeo. My hair is long, like you said, and and, uh, and uh, I was sitting there, and this old couple right in front of us says, "Helen, look at that." His hair's longer than hers. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> but he um, uh, still was pretty wayward and, and wild. And, and so I thought, you know what? I'll fix him. I'll take him to Bozeman, Montana. And I'll introduce him to Ron and Barb, college and career directors I was really close to, all my Christian friends, and I'll take him to church with me. And so we did, and um, I don't even know if they're still doing this, but the Agape Singers, does anybody, is that like familiar? Okay. Traveling college group of kids that um, uh, their message in, is it, all in music. And uh, I love music. So we go there that night, and we're at Grace Baptist Church, 
and they're telling the story of uh, taking up your cross for Christ. And they're showing all different kinds of crosses. And we're like third pew back. And at the end, they do um, an altar call. And Phil gets up. I didn't expect this. He gets up, he goes to the front, asks for prayer, gives his heart to God. That was amazing to me. And he, he completely transformed before my eyes. Now, I didn't know Phil when he was what he would call girlin' and wild and crazy out there, bar hopping. I didn't know him then. His friends tried to tell me stories, and he'd nudge them and tell them to shut up. You know, I, I don't want Sue to know some of those things about me. And so I never really knew Phil that way. I didn't know the, um, the stories uh, about his waywardness, if you will, because when God touched him that day in Grace Baptist Church, he was completely transformed. We, um, I knew, though, that he would go into the Catholic Church, so when we got back to Great Falls, Montana, I said to him, I said, you know what, I'll go to church with you on Saturday night if you'll come to church with me to the Evangelical Free Church of North America, which is where I was attending, uh, if you'll go with me on Sunday. So he said, sure. I go to church with him. I'd never been to Catholic Church. I have bad knees. I've had surgery on both knees, but at the time, I couldn't really kneel very well. And I used to always make a joke, you know, God never meant for me to be Catholic because I can't kneel. Even to do CPR, I grab something, you know, <laughs> to put underneath my knees. But um, they're going through, you know, the regular process, procedure, if you will, uh, in the Catholic Church. And and he's, I'm looking in their little book, and I'm reading what they're saying, and Phil's just spitting it out. He's just reciting all this stuff, and I'm reading, and I'm seeing that they're praying for the dead. And I thought, I leaned over to him, and I pointed to it. I said, you, you pray for the dead? You know, and he looked at me like, what do you mean? And he's looking at what, because you know, he didn't know. He was, when he was little, he went through catechism, confirmation, all that. He didn't know what he was, those were prayers that they were doing. And so we um, left there that night. Next morning, we're at my church, you know, similar, of course, to this one. And we're um, singing songs and, you know, worshiping. And, and uh, the pastor gets up there, Raleigh Struts, and He's just, you know, just so passionate about God and very energetic, and he's preaching. And he says to the congregation, I could preach till the cows come home. And Phil leans over to me, and he says, Sue, they're in the pasture. <laughs> it was a long service. So, like Phil said, we were married there, and Raleigh Struts married us, and... and um, we moved to California for job opportunities. Um, uh, I was uh, graduated as a nurse. Actually, when I graduated in 1982, I graduated on one day. We got married the next day. So um, I tend to invite stress into my life. I don't know why I do that, but I tend to do that. So we moved to California, and, um, you know, of course, Phil, like he shared, we shared, he gets hired by Long Beach Fire Department. But before that, when we got married, and we were in Montana, we had this really small apartment. We had no money. 
zero money. You know, we use cinder blocks, you know, to block up, to, you know, stack your little tiny black and white TV. And um, we got invited over to this couple's house from the church for our 4th of July uh, barbecue. But we had a lot of time to kill. So I was like, I don't want to sit here in this apartment. What are we going to do? So we decided, let's go to the park. So we're at the park. We're sitting in the swings. You know, the leather bottom with the big chain on both sides. We're sitting there swinging. You know, we're talking about our lives when we grew up. And we knew we didn't want that for our marriage. My parents divorced after 29 years of marriage. My sister's been divorced three times. All of his brothers have been divorced. His mom was divorced. We didn't want that with our family. So we're sitting there and we're swinging and God just spoke to both of us, you need to break the generational sin. You need to break the chain of generational sin. And oh my goodness. And we prayed that day that God would break the chain of generational sin and that our marriage and our family and raising our kids would be so different from anything we had ever known. That was a, a real telling day because um, little did we know I was pregnant with Jacob, our firstborn, while we were sitting in those swings. Phil was hired by Long Beach Fire Department and um, uh, when we were then in California, and we were in a church, um, Valley Christian Fellowship, thank you. Great little tiny church, you know, um, met some friends there. One friend that got to be very close, uh, Dr. David Robinson, and he, he uh, was a family practice physician, and he knew I was a nurse, and so he invited me to go with him to Tecate, Mexico, and um, uh, to a orphanage there and um, set up clinic on, on two, every, well, it was like every other Saturday. Um, so it would end up being like two Saturdays a month. So we would go there and then Phil came with me the second time and the third time we took our kids because we thought this is really important for them to see. These are kids in an orphanage, they're playing soccer in the dirt fields and we've got this um, uh, clinic going and so they can help in the clinic. And so we would do that. And we would go down there and we, you know, anytime you go do anything, whether it's you volunteer in your community, you go on a missions trip, whatever it is that you do, God ministers to you probably more than you've ministered to those that you're helping. And so God was doing that with us. And he really gave me a taste for missions. Not so much Phil, um, but he gave me a taste for missions. And so I had a friend that I worked with. Her name was Sherry. She's ended up being a, a wonderful, wonderful friend, um, several years older than, than I. And she invited me then to go on a medical missions trip with a church in Poway, which is San Diego County, uh, to Vicente Guerrero, which is way down deep in Mexico. Takati wasn't that far. You'd see the federales with their holding their guns and stuff, but, you know, it was was not that far. And so we are going down with this team and we're carpooling. So we're in this little tiny car and we're driving through Tijuana. And if you've ever been to Tijuana, Mexico, their taxes don't go to the roads. 
and there's big potholes that little VWs could fall into and never be seen again. And so, you know, you're dodging these, and then every place, every, I don't know if it was like the next city, you'd see these, um, you'd have to drive through these um, guys that are standing there with these big guns, and they were the federales. And they could pull over anybody, they could pull you out of the car, they could search you, they could do anything. And of course, you know, I you know, might have been raised in Southern California, but I didn't know Spanish. And so um, we get down there and, and we're gonna do a medical mission trip and we're with this other team. We meet at the church, the pastor says to us, okay, we're gonna go out to a colonia which is a village that's way out in the middle of nowhere. There's no trees, there's no nothing, but these people are um, very, very poor, very oppressed, and we're going to set up a clinic, and they're gonna go through it, and at the end, they're gonna get clothes that have been donated, food that's been donated, and the pastor's wife is gonna minister to them. So, okay, great. So. You know, had packed my scrubs, got stethoscope, you know, we're all ready to go. And uh, um, church from Poway um, had packed all the medical supplies that we were taking down there, which, by the way, when we went through the federales, that, they could have confiscated that stuff. But God protected us the whole way. So we get down there, and we're driving in in a van, and um, there are kids swarming like bees around the van touching the van, and the van's trying to move forward. And we get to the place, we unload, and these kids are, you know, grabbing your stethoscope, and they'd never seen anything like that, and, and they're just, you know, touching your clothes and looking at your hair, and just, um, it, was, it, it was a little bit intimidating. So we set up clinic. Now, um, when we first got there, one of the first things that I did was try to find out where the bathrooms were. And so I looked for the bathroom and said, oh, they're right over there. What it was, was this corrugated tin on this side, corrugated tin on this side, and they had dug a trench, and that's where you stood and tried to pee without getting it on your clothes. Now, for a man, that might be a little easy. For a woman, that's not so easy. And so I thought, okay, I'll just watch my water intake, and I'll go when we get back to the church and it'll be fine. And so we worked all day, and we saw people in the clinic and, and, um, um, and the gamut on medical issues you can just imagine. Their houses were built out of cardboard boxes and blankets, and that's how they divided rooms. I mean, there were some very elaborate houses made out of cardboard, but that's where they lived. And the, 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 the only thing you could see were maybe some tumbleweeds, as far as your eye could see, there was nothing out there. So we got to the end of the day and we're packing up and I have got to go to the bathroom. It's like, I'm not gonna be able to manage that bumpity 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 bump all the way back to the church. I've really gotta, excuse me, but I'm a nurse, I gotta pee. So I said to my friend Sherry, I said, I really have to pee. I don't know how to do this with these scrubs and, you know, not in a dress. And um, so we decided, let's walk way out from where we set up the clinic. We'll find a tumbleweed something, you know, to block, I'll help block you, she says, and you can go to the bathroom there. Okay, great. So we're walking out there. The sun is starting to set, so we don't want to get too far because there's no electricity out here and no lights. The only lights are going to be from the van. So we're walking out there. 
and I see this Hispanic woman. So I'm looking for somewhere to go to the bathroom, and she said, oh, outhouse, and she points to this outhouse. I didn't see the outhouse. I go in there, I go to the bathroom, I come out, the woman's gone. Now again, like I said to you, there is nothing it, as far as your eye can see. So where did she go? I didn't care, but I was so thankful that I had gotten to go to the bathroom. And so Sherry and I went back to the van, we got in the van, we go back to the... And I come home and I tell Phil about that. Because I'm thinking all along, who was that woman? And where did that, it was a wooden outhouse. Where did that outhouse come from? Because there was nothing out there. And we come to her and she, oh, right here. I mean, it's not like we had to travel a mile to get to the outhouse. It was right there. So I tell Phil, it's like, oh, Sue, that's so great. And, you know, God did amazing things. And what a wonderful trip you had. And, but basically, it's yours. You know, thanks for telling me. It's yours. And so Sherry, my friend, had invited us to come to her church, very Holy Spirit-filled church. Our church at the time was going through changes. Um, pastor was leaving. They were trying to find a new pastor. It was a very tiny church. So I thought, you know, what the heck, we'll go, we'll go visit her church. So I tell Phil this, and we go and we visit, and our kids go to Sunday school. And um, by this time, they're, you know, young elementary age. And uh, we walk out of the church, and we both look at each other and said, oh, we're supposed to be here. This is where we're supposed to be. And our kids also came out, and they loved Sunday school. You know, and, it was, and they didn't know anybody there, and, and, you know, but they loved Sunday school. It's like, okay, God, this is where you've got us. And like Raleigh Strutz had said, our pastor in Montana Go where you're going to grow. We just really felt God was taking us there. After we'd been there for probably a year or so, Tim Buttry was the pastor of the church at the time, and he's standing up from the pulpit, and he's talking about a mission trip the church is planning. And that mission trip is going to go to Peru. I just, like, we're supposed to go. God had spoke to me. I knew with every ounce of my being we were supposed to go on that trip. And so I lean over Phil's good ear, and I say, we're supposed to go on this trip. You know, and he looks at me, I'll watch the kids, you go. It's like, okay. But I knew we were supposed to go. You know, we hadn't, I was doing a lot of the immunizations for malaria and for the team and getting all that stuff together. We'd gotten our passports together and even got Phil's passport together to go, but he was going to stay and watch the kids. We didn't have anybody to watch the kids. We hadn't asked anybody to watch the kids until one day, Dr. Dave Robinson, that physician friend that was to go down to Ducati, said, uh, I'll watch your kids. <laughs> he said, I'll watch the kids. <laughs> so you're going to finish with I'll finish with it. Uh -huh. but, he, but that didn't give Phil, like Phil said to me, Last night, he said, I didn't really have an excuse. I said, but did God, like, speak to you? Did you just, like, feel in your heart? This is, you know, God's calling me to go. He said, no. He said, we had somebody to watch the kids. I didn't have an excuse anymore. I was like, okay, fine. So we get, and um, it's probably a team of 10 
I would say, and just the first week when we're in Peru, we're building a school across the road from the church. The second week is a medical missions. How convenient. And so, um, you know, Phil being the firefighter, EMT, that would work for him for the second week, and he had never built a school, but they were doing cinder block, and so he can do what he's told. He does that well. I am a witness to that. <laughs> and so he's, you know, he's working on the wall. Well, the first day when we get there, we went to Belen, Peru, which is the other side of the country from Lima. We're on the Amazon side. And um, Belen is like a very oppressed, depressed uh, village, and um, uh, kids are playing soccer on rooftops, um, and they managed to keep the ball on the rooftop. Pretty good soccer players. And um, we um, take a bus that takes us down through town and to the church. We're staying in a hotel that has no air conditioning, it's hotter than hot, the sweat is just pouring off of you, and the shower only has cold water, and it just kind of drips out of the, the faucet. So that was where we were staying, but I'll tell you, it was far better than where the church was located. And so we go through town, and you can smell, there's this market, and they've got all their wares out there, and they've got all their food out there, and you can see these chickens that are dead and plucked and laying there on the, on the wooden um, counter, if you will. And the smells, oh my gosh, the smells. But you didn't want to be rude, so you just kind of did this number as you're sitting in the bus, because you've got to have the windows down, it's hot, and trying to block the smells. They were horrendous and just made you nauseated. I lost 10 pounds, though, on that trip. Anyhow, so we get down to the church, and the church is built with cinder block. And um, uh, you go upstairs to get into the main sanctuary. And then there's cinder blocks with boards. And that's the seating. And so you sit, you know, on these boards. So we were at church. And we're having worship. And I get this little tap on my shoulder. Let me back up before that happened. So when we flew to Peru, we stopped in Miami overnight. We were in the hotel. We were praying for the trip. One of the gentlemen that was on the trip, his name was Geronimo Galvin. He is now a pastor in Ensenada, Ensenada, Mexico. He and his wife, they pastor a church there. And he was sitting there, and we were praying about this trip. And, you know, we're just, eyes are closed, heads are bowed, and people are praying as God was leading them. And Geronimo speaks up, and he says, God is telling me to tell you to watch your P's and Q's, keep your eyes open, and your ears alert, because he's going to do great things on this trip. Okay, well, the most I had ever experienced was a lady showing me where the bathroom was in that little wooden outhouse. So I didn't know what that meant. Okay, we'll keep our eyes open and our ears perked. And, and so we go on this trip. So we're in the church, okay? We're worshiping. I get this tap on my shoulder. And it's this woman, and she's just kind of motioning for me and, I, and saying something in Spanish. I don't know what she's saying. So I grab hold of Geronimo, because he's fluent in Spanish. It's his first language. And we go downstairs. And um, prior to the trip, Phil and I had packed. I was working in the emergency department then, and they donated some things. And when we first got to Peru, we went to the pharmacy, and we, you can buy 
all kinds of medicine there. We bought ampicillin, Keflex, you know, strong antibiotics. We bought, you know, we had brought with us IVs because we knew it was going to be hot, it was going to be humid, and that our teammate, this was all for our team in case somebody got ill on this trip because you're in a different country. So um, we had this box. And so he takes me downstairs, and there's this boy, which I thought was a boy, haircut really short and boys' clothes, standing there with mom and has um, a bandage around, around her, his hand and um, says, you know, he had cut his hand on a can and um, um, they just want you to look at it. The barber across the road had sewed it up for him. So it's like, okay, you know, we're here day one. The medical team will be here next week. There'll be physicians there. I'm a nurse. I thought, okay, you know, so I unwrapped the hand. The hand had a cut from the first finger across the hand all the way down to the wrist, okay? And it just, when I opened it, it had this um, thread that was blue. It was a very thick thread that the barber had used to try to sew it together, but there were gaps like this. And... Um, and so I unwrapped it, and I looked at it, and I thought, well, i got to take the thread off of here. So I cut the thread. That whole hand opened up like when you fillet a fish or you fillet a piece of chicken. And you know how you can see the striations in the meat? That's exactly what you could see here. Wasn't bleeding, which told me that we probably had a good amount of infection going on in here because the blood had stopped. And so we had also uh, purchased some betadine. I won't take you through all the, you know, process. But I flushed it, cleaned it, put a wet-to-dry dressing on it. And I had had a hand surgeon once that had taught me how to do a boxing glove dressing that prevents you from moving even your fingers so that the blood wouldn't rush to the wounded area and um, make it a good medium for bacteria. So I did that dressing. See how God prepares you all along the way? You know, um, you really have to, I just want to interrupt this to say, you really have to listen for me, it's my gut. When God told me after 10 years of my undergraduate that I was going to graduate school, I had to listen to my gut and do that. I had two small kids. I'm going to work full time, go to graduate school, Phil's testing to be a fireman. How insane is that? But I did it. And God bless me for it, because he's used that knowledge later to help in so many different areas other than nursing. I can't even, it's a whole other story. But anyhow, so I flush that. I know we've got Keflex. I give her a, or him a Keflex. And I say to mom, come back here every day this week, and I'll redress it. And, and I knew that we had enough Keflex, and it was a strong antibiotic. I would give that child one Keflex every day. Well... The Keflex, I'm telling you, is not going to do anything unless you're taking it three times a day, okay, or twice a day. And, you know, you get a blood volume with that antibiotic in it. It's, it's not going to do anything, but I, I didn't know what else to do, and I just thought, you know, we'll do something. Gives them hope. Because I'm thinking there is no way. I'm just going to try to prevent gangrene from setting in in this hand. 
So we did that. As the week went on, she came back, or he came back every day with mom. And um, we're the last day before the, um, the medical team is going to arrive and we're going to set up clinic. Been working on the, the school all week long. And we're there the last day, and one of our team members gets very, very ill. He was an older man. He gets sick. And so I have to take this, like, rickshaw-type thing back to the hotel. It's a motorcycle with a little buggy attached, but when you're going up the hill, you got to get out and help push it up the hill because your weight will prevent, you know, um, them from pulling you up the hill. So... I take that and I go back to the hotel, start an IV on him, get him cooled down. And while I'm gone, Phil's going to share what happened. Again, we were, I was working on the uh, school, laying brick on the school. And uh, Dave Wagner was our uh, missions leader for, for the team. This comes in a little bit like the uh, Band of Brothers. We've been talking about the healing. and the, Anyways, uh, if any men has, hasn't gone, you need to go. A great bunch of guys, and they're really very knowledgeable. Most I've ever seen from men's group. Anyways, uh, I was on that wall, and as I was sitting there, when Dave Wagner came up, he was Phil, there's a, a baby that's sick down at the church. And I said, okay. So I said, okay, I'll go. And then I started walking. Well, uh, I said, what can, what can I do? I'm, I'm talking audibly out loud. I said, what can I do? I'm a fireman. We scoop and run. That's all we do. And right then, the, the voice from God came down and says, my Damascus experience, if you know, familiar with that. And he said, go. I said, but Lord, we just scoop and run. What do I do? And he goes, you just go. Very stern. And I said, okay, Lord. So I just went to say another word. I wasn't arguing with him. And I got there. Now, mind you, he turns to Dave Wagner, the missionary, and says, he turns to Dave Wagner, the missionary, and he says, did you hear that? And Dave looks at him like he's nuts. No, he, he didn't know what was going on. It was, it was like when Paul was walking, no one else knew. No one, it was the Damascus experience. Deja vu. Uh, but when I went in there, the baby skin, this is why this is a piece of paper. The baby was dead. Been dead for a while. And I looked at him and I said, I know a dad. I'm a fireman. I said, there's, what can I do? Anyways, I said, okay, we had some orange juice that morning. I don't know why I did this. So we had orange juice that morning. We had some amoxicillin that we had bought down at the uh, pharmacy. So I grabbed the amoxicillin and I put it in a, a teaspoon and I, and I crushed it up and I put the orange juice in there. And I reached down to touch the baby's lips and as soon as I touched the baby's lip, the power of God came through me and healed that baby immediately. I'm sitting there going like, wow. And I'm not saying anything. I just, just saw the power of God go through me. And I was like, uh, I said, wow. And anyways, Sue came back from administering the IV, and she walked in. But there was a gal who was a Carol. beautician, and she was on this missions trip. 
and um, she was with Phil, and so she witnessed the whole thing. And so, um, you know, I have all these people coming out to me. I'm getting out of this rickshaw thing, which wasn't an easy task in and of itself. I'm trying to get out of this rickshaw thing, and all these people are rushing to me. Come on, come on, you need to come with us. You know, because Phil had said to Dave when Dave had asked him to come to the church, well, Sue's back at the hotel. You know, what am I going to do? Like he said, we scoop and run. And not that I would have done anything different. I mean, what are you going to do if the child is dead? This is a Peruvian child. And if it's as white as this paper and limp and flaccid, like Phil was explaining to me when I first got there, um, uh, you know, and like he, he's, seen, he's seen death, a lot of death, that that child was not alive. So when I got there and everybody's, you know, scurrying me into the, the lower level of the church, um, I walk in, and here's this mom, Peruvian mom. She's holding this baby that would have been somewhere between six and nine months old that's cooing and giggling. And um, Phil said, that is not how it was a few minutes ago. And the gal that was with Phil, the beautician, and she was just like, she didn't, speechless. She didn't know what to say. But they both explained to me and, and told me the, the story, and I I said, okay, so what am I supposed to be doing here? <laughs> and um, there was nothing to do. But I was just like, oh my gosh. Here, Phil wasn't going to go. You know, and people stepped up to watch our kids, and he didn't have an excuse. And exactly what Geronimo had said in that Miami hotel happened. Keep your eyes open, your ears perk, because I'm going to do a mighty thing. Well, I'll tell you, from growing up in a Baptist church, I put God in a box. I knew what God did in the Bible. I knew all the miracles that had, been, um, that had happened in the Bible. But I didn't believe that they happened today until that day. So my box was expanded my box was expanded to the point where I knew God did these in third world countries. But does he do them here? And so God began to teach me about being vulnerable and being obedient. Before, my obedience had never been an issue. It was never difficult for me to be obedient because that's just the kind of kid I was. It was never hard to, to be that way. But after those two experiences... God began to show me, I don't want you just to be obedient here. I want you to be vulnerable to me. Now, if you look up the word vulnerable in the dictionary, it has very negative connotations to it. You know, it's inviting criticism. It's, um, um, uh, you know, in inviting negative things um, by just kind of opening up yourself. And I like to get a visual. I'm a visual learner. So I like to have a visual of you just opening up your arms like this. And just whatever comes at you, comes at you, and that's what being vulnerable is. But God said to me, and he taught me, no, you're going to be vulnerable to me. And we know that being vulnerable to God means his arms are open this wide, and he's welcoming you with every ounce of his being and every love you can imagine feeling. And he lifts you up. And so I'm learning that while we're in Peru. And I, I continued to take care of that little, little boy's hand. 
And the last day after that happened with Phil, I met with that little boy and, his, and the mom, and I said, um, now everyone's going to be lining up for the clinic, so, you know, just I'll come and find you, and then we'll take you to see a, a physician. And the day before, or that day when I had, before the clinic started, and I had wrapped the hand one last time, did a wet-to-dry dressing. That meant betadine on a 4x4, four four, and then a dry 4x4 four four on top of that, and then I wrapped it in that boxing glove dressing. And it was still filleted open, but it wasn't oozing the pus that it had been oozing before. But that didn't mean that child did not have infection in their bloodstream. So, wrapped it up that night, People start, in that village started to line up for this clinic. Oh my goodness. The rain started coming down in buckets. I have never in my lifetime seen it rain as hard as it was raining. And the streets of the village are dirt and they're flooding and people are lining up. We can't even see them anymore. They've got all the way down past the church, around the corner, and they are out there all night waiting to see a doctor. Morning comes, we're there, we've got everything set up, start seeing the first patient in the clinic. I go out and I'm thinking, these people have been waiting in the rain all night, they're soaked, they're tired, and I'm going to pull somebody out of line? You know, we may have a, a real problem when they see me do this. So I walk down the line, I'm around the corner, and I spot the mom. Got her child with and I just grab hold of the child, don't say anything, I just grab hold of the child, and I take this child with me, and we go into um, the partially built school, that's where we set up the clinic. And I go to one of the docs in there, and I say, I tell them the whole story. So I says, okay, let me take a look. So we cut the bandage off, open up the wound, and you know what people say about, you know, like there's a lifeline, you know, you see those little creases in the palm of your hand. Look at your hand. Everybody look at your hand. See that little crease? Because I really want you to get a visual of this. That's all that there was. The hand was not filleted open anymore. That's all that there was. And the doctor looks at me like I'm nuts. And he says, what do you want me to do here? And I said, I'm telling you, it was filleted open it must have been gapped like this. It was completely filleted open. You know, all I did was try to keep it as clean as I could till you guys got here, but it was not even closed. And I thought the most I could hope for is that the tissue from inside would regenerate and, and, and ultimately, in probably months, cause this big scar across the palm of her hand, his hand, but the, there was nothing there. There was like that little crease in the palm of your hand totally blown away. I'm an emergency room nurse. I've seen a lot of different stuff. We've cracked chests of 14-year-old boys that have been involved in gunshots and massaged hearts and done all of that. And, you know, and then I see this hand healed. It couldn't have been 12 hours that had gone by. And he said, Sue, just for you, we'll put a Band-Aid on it. So he puts a Band-Aid on it. After we're done, the mom says to me, I want you to take my child home with you to the States. I said, I can't. I can't do that. And she said, you don't understand. I have nine others. It'll be okay. I'll be fine with this one gone. <laughs> I have nine other kids, and I'll be okay. And, 
And I said, but, you know, I can't. And I said, let's take a picture. So, and I have that picture somewhere. I wanted to find it so I could bring it here and show it to you. And I'm sorry, we've gone a little over. Um, and I couldn't find it, but it's not important. But this child was not a boy. This child was a girl. She had cut his hair short, tried to make her look as unattractive as possible because she suffered from incest. And that's why mom wanted to protect her and get her out of there and have her come home with me. We took a picture. They met us at the airport when we got ready to leave. But you can see through all of that, just like Hieronimo said, keep your eyes and your ears open. God is saying, be vulnerable to me, and I will show you what I can do. You know, in the women's study, um, I kept doing the wrong lesson every time. I kept doing the wrong lesson. But God was showing me different things, and he showed me the story of Lazarus. And you know when Mary asked Jesus, they asked Jesus to come and heal um, their brother because their brother um, was very, very sick, and they were afraid he was going to die, and Jesus never responded to them. And Lazarus died, and he was dead for four days before Jesus came there. And Jesus came, and what did Jesus do? We all know the story. He rose him from the dead. Okay, if... God can raise Jesus from the dead. He can definitely be taking care of our little problems, can't he? He can be healing that hand. He can be raising that child from the dead. And it doesn't just happen in third world countries. It happens here. I was reading my Bible last night, and God just showed me. He said, Sue, you need to share this. And it is in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 19, verses 23 through 26, and I have all different versions. <laughs> I got my study Bible, I've got the message Bible, and a lot of times I'll read something in maybe the New King James, and I go to the message Bible because it's so down to earth. It's right there in your face. And so I read this verse, and this is when God, or Jesus is, is talking to the disciples about entering the, uh, God's kingdom. And so I'm just going to read this to you. Jesus told his disciples, do you have any idea how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom? Let me tell you, it's easier to gallop a camel through a needle's eye than for the rich to enter God's kingdom. The disciples were staggered. Then who has any chance at all? You know, and I, I read that and I thought about these trips that we had taken and I thought, you know, I didn't expect any of that to happen. And yes, you know, God brought that baby back to life, and God healed that uh, little girl's hand and made some amazing things happen, and, and they were blessed because of it. But do you know how long ago that was? I've been blessed ever since. Phil's been blessed ever since. It brings him to tears to tell the story. We've been blessed ever since. Then who has any chance at all? It's like when you go on a mission trip or you go downtown and you feed the homeless or, or you're out here at the food bank helping, doing whatever, you know, if God has called you to do that, you go. It might be for a day, it might be for a week, it might be for the rest of your life, but you go. You be obedient and you be vulnerable. You open your arms to God and say, I know you love me. I know you're going to take care of me, but I want to be a part of what you're doing. So they said, then who has any chance at all? Jesus looked hard at them and said, no chance at all if you think you can pull it off yourself. Every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. 
So whether it was graduate school, and I believe this is, this is for you, whether it's graduate school and you got two little kids and you're working full time and you know how you're going to do it, God takes you through it. He takes you through it and he blesses you on the other end because the knowledge that I gained by going to graduate school, I helped a pastor start a school. I got to minister to kids that were wayward. It was an evangelistic school. I get to minister to kids by teaching Bible and biology. Hire the teachers, get the curriculum going. It was a Christian school in Ramona. I had always wanted to go to Romania on a missions trip to minister to the sewer kids, the kids that live in the sewer. Their parents can't afford to keep them anymore and minister to the kids in the, in the sewer. And by one of my last days, I thought I was only going to be there for two weeks. I ended up being there for two years. One of my last days there at the school, Phil leans over to me. He said, Sue, you know, the only difference between Romania and Ramona is an I. And that just hit me because those kids, I mainly had boys, and boy, were they something else. I used to have to say to them, check the attitude at the door before you walk in because we're not dealing with it here. I got to minister to them. God allowed me to do that. So you go and you be vulnerable to what God has for you because he's going to protect you and he's going to bless you beyond, beyond belief. Phil and I, and I'm just going to sum it up because we're out of time. We've been out of time, but <laughs> thank you for hanging in there with us. Phil and I got back to the church a few years later, got invited to a leadership conference. We went, God spoke to us and said, why don't you start a marriage ministry? Now, Phil and I had had problems in our marriage. We had been married for 18 years, and we didn't know how to communicate. But it wasn't a big deal because he was gone 24 hours at a time. And sometimes he'd be gone for 72 hours at a time, or he'd be out on a strike team, and he could be gone for weeks. So we'd talk to each other on the phone, just the facts. Kids are doing fine. Got baseball, got softball this weekend. You know, if you're home, great. This is where we're going to be. And that's how we communicated. Until one day, you know, and you have your little spats, your little arguments. Phil was the type, because of his family, he would walk away, leave the house. I was one of those that would chase after, no, we have to finish the argument. We have to, you know, make peace. And after 18 years of doing that, I got really tired. And I'm just going to share this to you. So I got really tired. And one of the things that we share in, when we were doing marriage ministry, we did it for eight to ten years, is that women are crockpots, and if you walk away with anything, walk away with this. Women are crockpots, men are microwaves. Both in the sexual nature, but as well in their emotions. And women will take and take and take, but one day they're done. And you hope you get to that couple before they're done. That day I thought I was done. I was trying to figure out, okay, he's at the fire station so many days. I'm here. The kids should stay here. They were in high school then. You know, I could go to my friend's house and stay there, and then when he goes to work, I'll come back to the house. The kids won't leave. I had it all planned out. And my friend who I was going to go stay with said, Sue, I want you to read the five love languages. I want you and Phil to read the five love languages. And so we did. We locked our door. We told the kids, don't knock on this door unless you are bleeding or not breathing. And they knew it. Don't bother mom and dad while they're in there. We laid in bed. He'd read a paragraph, I'd read a paragraph. He'd read a paragraph, I'd read a paragraph. 
till we got through the whole book. And we realized we never communicated with each other. I didn't know what his love language was. What I was saying to him was as if I was speaking a foreign language. And what he was saying to me was as if he was speaking a foreign language. We started speaking each other love language and God dramatically changed our marriage. So when God said, I want you to do a marriage ministry, we were excited to start it. We didn't know what that meant, but we went through a certification through NAME, which is National Association of Marriage Enhancement. We got our certification to be counselors. We did premarital counseling. We did counseling of couples, but we did it couple to couple counseling. Never separate. Never, ever separate. And God did some things like you wouldn't believe, couples that you thought were doomed to divorce, they were about ready to file, he totally turned them around. We started a Sunday school class for that. We did a home fellowship for that, all while working full-time jobs and raising two kids that did travel ball. So um, we were really, really, really busy, but we knew how to communicate because we had read that book, and it helped us. And because we were obedient and vulnerable to what God had for us. Anything else? Yeah, I got one. I have one little uh, story to tell. Um, I, was this, I was on the fire department 25 years. I'm not going to tell you any of those stories. We will go over them someday, probably in Band of Brothers or something like that, uh, as things uh, transpire. Um, but one day, I was going to work. I, we, I'd leave at 3.30 in the morning and have to get on the 91 freeway which is bumper to bumper at five. If you don't get there before five, you're in bumper to bumper. You're not going to get there till nine. So I, I got through there. I'm listening to worship music, and I was just rocking out, man. It was great. It was, uh, it was great. I mean, uh, the worship music, and and I and it was like 30 miles to the 91, and I, I went from Temecula, and then I made a left-hand turn, got on the 91, and I just paused for a moment, and I said, "Good morning, Lord." And right then, his voice said, good morning, Phil. I went, Lord, <laughs> this, this, it was joyful. It was joyful. And I said, this is cool, Lord. This is really cool. <laughs> and and, and that, was, uh, that, was, that was the end of my story. So you can hear the audible voice of God, being vulnerable, being obedient. That's our testimony. Well, to, uh, to testify, like in court, is to speak the truth of what you know. And uh, that's what we've heard this morning. God does work miracles. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Thank you. Father God, thank you for this morning. For each person that's here to, to hear and uh, third hand experience a miracle. Several. And Lord, to, uh, to understand and to hear someone testify to the presence and the power of God in their life after they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray for Phil and Sue and this ministry that they're going to begin in our midst. And uh, Lord, you do work miracles uh, even to this day. Be with us as we're dismissed in Jesus' name. Amen.